If you have your Bibles, grab them. The book of Luke, chapter 2, is where we are at this morning. Taking a break from our series to the book of 1 Corinthians for Christmas, Luke chapter 2. Before we start, uh, we're calling this series The Deeper Magic of Christmas, and for those of you who are um, uh, aware, uh, may know that's a, a reference to Narnia, C.S. Lewis's book, Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, the white witch has deceived and captured Edmund, who is one of the children who's come to Narnia through the wardrobe, and uh, the witch comes to negotiate with Aslan because they've rescued Edmund back, and, uh, and, and she knows that he is rightfully hers as a traitor, because he's betrayed them, and so uh, she is calling upon the deep magic that Aslan knows about, that all traitors belong to her. And his blood is rightfully hers. He should be able, she should be able to take his life. And Aslan, in this conversation, does not deny that fact, but offers her a bargain in, uh, instead. He says, his life for Edmunds, to which the white witch happily agrees. And so that night, the white witch kills and slays Aslan on the stone table so that Edmund may go free. And throughout the night, the, the girls, his sisters, are there crying over Aslan's slain body. But as morning comes, something amazing happens, something unexpected ha happens. And spoiler alert, sorry you're like 50 years too late, Aslan comes back to life. And everyone is shocked. And they're excited and they cheer and they ask, how can this be? And here is what he says. It means, says Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic... There is magic deeper still, in which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back a little further, back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. The idea of the deeper magic has captured the imagination of so many who have read this wonderful book. And if you've not read it, I encourage you to do so this Christmas season. And I think it might serve us well as an illustration uh, for this Christmas season. You see, Christmas is such a unique time of the year. It is so much more to us than a mere holiday. We've got holidays all the time. We have holidays all year long, but none of them rise to the, to the level that Christmas has arisen for us. Not even Easter rises to the, to the level that we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is, a, is, a, is not a day, it's a season. It's a cultural festival. We together for a month, or some of us even longer. My tree has been up since the first week of November. Um, so, but some of us, we sing songs. We eat only certain kind of foods this time of year, uh, and we eat a lot of those types of foods. And, and we hang lights, and we have Christmas plays, and we put up trees and stockings and nativities, and we put up all these decorations, and we watch the same movies every year. Some of them very old, but we have all of these traditions that we keep and we celebrate for a month or longer, and the question is why? Because like the Hallmark movies try to tell us, there is a thing as, that we call the magic of Christmas. And you can feel it in the air. 
you can feel it in the generosity that we have at this time of year. You can feel it in the way we go and serve people in a way we don't for the rest of the year. You can see it in the traditions and in the festivals and in the eating. It is in the air all around us. And we call it the magic of Christmas. And it is something that every year we try to recapture. We try to reawaken in us by doing these same things and trying to recover the, the, those Christmas feelings and Christmas vibes we had as a kid. And we want to recapture those childhood memories. And we repeat these traditions and try to find the magic of Christmas again. We want to feel it again and anew. But what I want to help us do over the next four weeks is to see that through the magic of Christmas, that though the, the magic of Christmas is real and it is palpable and it is good and it is moving, that there is a deeper magic still. That if we go back further than our traditions, that if we go back further than our childhood memories, that if we go back further and look past the lights and past the decorations and past the songs and past the foods, we will find a deeper magic, the magic behind all of this hubbub. And when we see this deeper magic, we will know and we will feel more alive and changed and renewed and, dare I say, enchanted by this deeper magic still. And so let's go back. Further than our traditions, further than the decorations, further than even the Christmas movies we watch every year, let's go back to Luke chapter 2 and open the scriptures and see the deeper magic. Luke chapter 2, would you please stand out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God from Luke chapter 2, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke writes, starting in verse 22, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And this, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said, Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising for many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Many of you might recall in high school uh, reading Homer's The Odyssey. Uh, you might remember Odysseus leaving his home to go on a great journey, to go fight in the Trojan War. You might remember the, the battles with the sea monsters. You might remember the encounter uh, with, uh, with the, the sirens and how Odysseus tied himself to the mast of the ship and ha uh, had all of his men plug their ears with beeswax so he could hear the deadly siren song. You might remember the challenges he faced in his home when he returned. 
But there was one small detail of that story that always struck me. It's when Odysseus returned home after all of these years of being being away. His dog Argos, though very old, was laying at the entrance to his palace awaiting his master to return. And after seeing him come home at last, the faithful dog could die in peace. Argos, the dog, uh, he knew that his master would come home. And he waited and he waited and he waited knowing that the day would come. And once it did, he could depart in peace. In our story this morning, we find a man like Argos uh, who had been waiting a really, really long time for God to keep a promise that was made to him. Now Simeon, Simeon wasn't anybody particularly special. Uh, Simeon wasn't a priest. He didn't work in the temple. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't some person of religious significance or of political power. He was just an average dude. But the text tells us that he was righteous and devout. He loved God. And he followed God the best he could with his whole heart. The text also tells us that he was awaiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a weird phrase. And what in the world does that mean, the consolation of Israel? When we think about consolation uh, in, our, in our language, we probably think of a consolation prize, right? The prize the loser gets, right, for not winning. And so you get a consolation prize. You get a, well, thanks for playing prize. But think about the meaning of the word itself. The reason you give someone a consolation prize is because you're trying to console them. You're trying to comfort them. And so the root of the Greek word is the same we get when uh, it is to bring comfort. And it's interesting, the Greek word is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit, who we call the parakeet, the the parakeet, (laughs) the paraclete, who it is called the comforter. This phrase was this consolation of Israel, this phrase was actually a way the Jews uh, used this phrase to refer to the coming of the Messiah. Because, think about it, when the Messiah was coming, he was coming to bring comfort. He was coming to restore, to fix, and to heal what was broken. The Jews were living under Roman occupation, their homeland uh, that was promised to them thousands of years ago, uh, was not their own. They were not in charge of their own home. More than that, they were uh, slaves to sin like the rest of humanity. They had had no prophet come to them in over 400 years. God was silent. He wasn't speaking. And the Gentiles were living in darkness and no one really, none of them knew who the one true God was. The Messiah, supposedly, was coming to fix all of that. He was the consolation of Israel, the comforter of Israel, the one who would come to make all things right again. And so this Simeon, this normal guy who loved God, was living his life and was eager for the longing of the Messiah to come and heal the world. But Simeon is one of millions of people who had also been waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years. There was no reason to expect or to believe or to have much hope that Simeon would see the Messiah in his lifetime. And yet, still, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, faithful and obedient to God, and longed to see the Messiah, longed for him to come and to heal the world. And God took notice. God noticed this man. 
God noticed his devotion and his longing for the Messiah. And so God comes and he makes a promise to him. He gives him a sort of comfort, a comfort from God that he did not have to give. But God, looking out for and caring for the whole world, didn't have to give this one random man this comfort. But he does. He notices him. He, he knows his heart. And, he, and he's, he knows that he's longing for the Messiah to come. And so God sends the Holy Spirit, the comforter, to give a promise about the coming comforter. That before he died, he would see with his very eyes the Christ, the Messiah. All of Israel had been waiting since the dawn of time. I love, when we had all the kids up here, I love that, I don't, know how, I don't know who said it or how old they were, but this girl said, what was the first promise given to us in the Bible? That God would send a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. That's biblical theology. That's good, right? That, that's, that's impressive. Uh, and so th- this promise, this whole, this, uh, so, so God is giving Simeon this comfort that the one who has come to crush the head of the serpent, he will see him with his very eyes. Before you see death, you will see him with his very eyes. All of Israel have been waiting. And Simeon now has the great honor to know that he will see him before he dies. Now I think there is an encouragement here for us that I don't want to miss. God could have just allowed Simeon to see Jesus before he died. Like he could have just, just let it happen. He didn't have to tell him beforehand that he was going to do it. He could have just done it. Uh, he didn't have to tell him presumably years and years before the event happened. He didn't have to make the promise. He could have just let him see him. So why was he doing that? Like, like I could promise my kids that when they grow up, that I will pay for their college. I'm not making that promise, but I could make that promise. I could do that. Or I, 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 could, I could just, when the time gets here, just pay for their college. But what benefit is it now for me to make that promise instead of just doing it one day? Well, promises help us face tomorrow. Knowing what is coming, knowing the promise, and the promise, the one who's made the promise, helps us to face tomorrow. Because the promise might not be fulfilled right now, but because we can trust the promise maker today, knowing the promise removes the anxiety and removes the worry and removes the stress and and gives us confidence to face tomorrow. Knowing the promise today helps me to have faith and trust in the one who made the promise. You see, write this down, promises help us today, not because the promise is fulfilled today, but because it enables us to trust in the one who made them. It works faith in us, it works trust in us, and it gives us encouragement, it gives us a comfort to face tomorrow. One of the things that is so hard as a kid, and maybe even adults, but is waiting, particularly waiting on Christmas in our home, uh, we are early Christmas people, like I said, and we start listening to Christmas music way too early and drinking, um, uh, you know, pumpkin spice probably way too early and, um, you know, uh, putting our Christmas tree up way too early, as early as possible. This year we did it earlier than ever, the first week of November. We put our tree up, uh, first of November, we, did, we got all of our decorations out that first week of November. We, were, we put our lights outside, but though my wife wouldn't let me turn them on outside because we would have been the only ones in the neighborhood with lights on, and it's kind of against the HOA, though I don't care about HOAs, we, but she wouldn't let me do it. So, but the lights were on the tree. So all the lights were up, and first week of November, we put it all up, and that night I'm tucking my kids into bed, and uh, Ember, who is four, she's four, when you have five kids, you can't keep up with how old they are, okay? And, and so I'm tucking Ember into bed that night, 
And uh, we read our, our Bible story, and, and I'm talking to her, and she says, Daddy, is Christmas tomorrow? I said, no, honey, it's not tomorrow. She said, but we put our tree up. I was like, I know, honey, but it's not tomorrow. She said, three days. I said, not three days. She said, a week. I said, honey, more like two months. <laughs> she said, aw. <laughs> That's a long time. But there is good in the waiting. There is good in the longing. Because in the waiting and in the longing, we, we learn patience, we learn to trust, and we learn to appreciate the arrival. I don't know all the reasons that God told Simeon that he would see the Messiah before he died, but I know that every day after Simeon knew, Simeon's life would have been very different. Imagining the waiting, imagine the longing. Is this the day? Waking up every day, is this the day that I will see him? Is today the day I'll see him? Maybe it's tomorrow. Imagine the patience he had to learn, but a patience with expectation. A patience knowing that the arrival would come, the fulfillment would come. Is waiting, but knowing that it's around the corner, it's coming. Imagine the trust that it had to build in him. That as he aged and got older and older, Still believing that God would keep his word and show him the Messiah. Waiting makes us, keeps us putting our trust in, our, in, in the one who has the ability to keep his promises. As Simeon is getting older and older and older, knowing it's, in some ways it's got to be a great feeling, right? Like, I can't die, right? Let's go do whatever that we want to do because I can't die because I won't die until God keeps his promise. You know, so often God does kind of that in our lives where we are trusting that he is going to take care of us, that he's going to provide for us. Uh, but sometimes and oftentimes God's timing and our timing are out of sync, right? Um, and we want the fulfillment right now. Like we're like, God, you didn't get the memo. I need it today. We want it right now. We want the provision right now. We want the help right now. But so often God leaves us waiting, and he lets us kind of squirm for a while. He lets us squirm in the waiting. But why does he do that? Because in the waiting, we have to eventually lean on him and trust in him and learn to hold on to him. And little by little, we see his provision and care come along the way, and that builds our trust in him. I have a whole list of people that I am close to right now who I could tell you stories about who are walking by faith and not by sight because of job uncertainty, because of relationship uncertainty, because of financial uncertainty. And every day for them is terrifying, but they take the next step by faith and trust in the Lord's provision, the, to trust that the Lord will give us this day our daily bread. Oh, Lord, they don't know how we're going to make it through tomorrow, but they know that God will preserve them each and every day. We may not like waiting. Uh, but God is teaching us to trust him so that the next time that we have to wait and trust him, it will be a little bit easier and then a little bit easier each and every time when we finally learn that he is in control and he keeps his promises. You see, waiting teaches us to trust God. Write that down if you're taking notes. Waiting teaches us to trust God. Imagine how the excitement built in Simeon over the years. Imagine how the anticipation is building and building, never knowing when it's going to come. And when it finally comes to pass, 
that he would see the Messiah, it would be the pinnacle of his life. So much so that after he sees him, after he sees this baby Jesus, he says to God, now your servant can depart in peace. Now I can die in peace. You know, as a pastor, I have sat with a lot of people on their deathbed. Um, Many who have been maybe living without a spouse for some years. Uh, Many who have loved Jesus. Uh, And it is such a difficult time, but a sweet time, a hopeful time as I sit with them and they tell me, Brent, I'm ready to go home. I am ready to leave. No fear, no worry, no regret in life. They've lived their life. They're ready to go home. And they say, Brent, I wish you'd go ahead and take me. I'm ready to go now. Right? Because Jesus is with them. And they're at the end of their life. Like, I've lived it. I'm, I'm ready to depart in peace. That is what Simeon finally feels when he sees Jesus. When he meets baby Jesus, he says, now I can take me home. I can die in peace. Because though the waiting was good, though the waiting was instructive, though the waiting teaches us to trust God, it is in the fulfillment and the arrival of the promise, the completion of the promise, that never disappoints. It's never a letdown. And you know, sometimes you might wait on something for a long time, like like for me, like waiting on, you know, the new Star Wars movie to come out or new, some new movie that, you, you know, you're waiting for, waiting years for, and then it gets delayed and pushed back and wait, and it finally comes and you go watch it and you're so excited and you watch it and you're like, that wasn't very good. It could have been better. You know, it's kind of a letdown, right? But when we wait on God, his promises are never a, a letdown. They are always as good or better than we thought they would be. His promises are always worth it. And so Simeon experiences the fulfillment of this promise because on this day, Simeon is he's, he's, he's prompted by the Holy Spirit to, to go to the temple. And, and this is not necessarily unusual. He would have, he's a Jew in Jerusalem. He'd have been spending a good amount of time out and around and in the temple. But this day was different. Because he's led by the Spirit, and the Spirit's prompting him to go to the temple. He's like, well, I'm going to go to the temple. And he does that. But just so happens, on the same day that he feels this urge to go to the temple, Mary and Joseph had traveled from Bethlehem, because it was on the eighth day of Jesus' birth, and they know they've got to go, according to the law of Moses, to go make these sacrifices for their firstborn son. But now, this is no coincidence. You know, uh, sometimes things can seem like a coincidence, Sometimes we look at things and we think it's happenstance. Sometimes things can seem random or, man, I can't believe that all worked out. But this is not that. And it rarely ever is. God promised Simeon that he would see the Messiah before his death. And as Simeon walks into the temple, he sees a young couple holding the baby and he knows that's them. He knows it's him. And he goes up. And I don't know, this might have been, seems like it would have been a little weird for Mary and Joseph as this random dude that they don't know comes to walk up and says, let me see that baby. Let me see him. They're like, okay. And then he prophesies over him. Holds him in his arms. God keeps his promise. Simeon would see, be one of the very first people to see this king, this newborn king, this Messiah. And not only see him, but to know who he is. To not just see him pass in the street, but to see him and to know who he is and what he would come to do and what his birth means for the world. See, God always keeps his promises. 
this day Simeon is, he has the completion of the promise. God always keeps his promises. And this promise God made to Simeon was not the only promise God was keeping with the coming of this, the Messiah. You know, the Old Testament has over 300 promises that God has made to his people and to the world about the coming of the Messiah. And in Jesus, God was keeping every one of them. And Simeon knew this. And so when Simeon runs up and he takes this newborn baby into his arms, he says these words over Jesus. Lord, or says them to God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, Simeon knows that this baby come to bring salvation. This baby is bringing salvation to the world. Now, we don't know how much Simeon understood about what Jesus had come to do. This, he knows this is the one they've been waiting for. He knows that this is the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. He knew this is the one who would come to end suffering and death and reverse the curse. This is the one who would come to set the world right. This is the one who would come to be a king in the line of David and reign over the world forever. And fascinatingly, he understands something that most of his contemporaries at the time seemed to forget. That he was going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. To us. That this Messiah was coming not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. That he was bringing the light of the glory of God to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Something all those religious people around him in that temple had seemingly forgot. And when, Je when Simeon sees baby Jesus, Simeon sees the faithfulness of God to deliver not just on the promise that he made to him, but on the promises that God has made to the whole world to bring salvation. And we know that we get to see what Simeon would not see. We get to see what Simeon would have only longed to see. That salvation come to pass. Come not by raising an army to drive out Rome, but to come and do something that no one really expected. That the Savior would come not with purple robes and riches, raising an army, but would come in humility, would live a simple but righteous life, and would come to die a sinner's death and save us not from Rome, but from a far greater, more sinister enemy, the penalty of our own sin. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, this promise that God has made, that's the little girl up here said, that he would crush the head of the serpent. And do you remember what happens after that? God makes this promise, Eve, you will have a son who will crush the head of the serpent. And then what does he do? He clothes them. He clothes them in animal skins. They had covered their nakedness and their shame with fig leaves, and God says, no, that won't do. You see, the only way to cover your shame, the only way to cover your guilt, the only way to cover your sin is by the death of something else. And so God goes and he makes the first sacrifice himself and he, he kills an animal and clothes them in the skin of it. Foreshadowing that only God could cover our shame and only God could cover our guilt and only God could cover our sin. He made the first sacrifice and he'll make the last one. But no animal could do it, but rather his Messiah, his son, would have to be the one to come and die. And now we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so 
from the very beginning, God was showing this promise, and now in this son, in this baby, he is keeping all of those promises. The snake crusher, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The world had been waiting a long time for this Messiah to come, and some began to doubt he would ever come. I mean, God hadn't even sent a prophet for 400 years. But we do not just trust God when he keeps his promises on our timeline. We should trust God both with the promise and with the right timing to fulfill the promise. And there are some of you in this room right now, and you are walking through a season. You are walking through a storm. You are walking through a trial. And you know God has promised to never leave you or forsake you, but right now you feel alone. You know that God has promised to give you strength, but yet you feel weak. You know that God has promised to provide for you, but you're not sure where your next paycheck is coming from, where your next meal will come from. You know that God has promised to to give you rest, but yet you feel weary. God has promised to work all things for good to those who love him, but yet you look and you do not see any good being worked in your life. You just see chaos, brokenness, and everything falling apart. But God did not promise you that you would never see trials. He did not promise that you would never see suffering. He did not promise that your life would be easy. In fact, he promised that there would be trials. He promised that there would be difficulty, that there would be persecution and suffering and hardship. But he promised to always be with us, to never leave or forsake us, to make all things new, to heal the world, to give us strength, and to work all things for good in your life. And even when you cannot see God working, Simeon did did not know that God was orchestrating baby Jesus to come to the temple in his hometown the very day that he was going to run into the temple. Simeon did not know how God was orchestrating all these moving parts to fulfill his promise, but he knew the promise keeper would do what he said. And so, wherever you are today, it is not where you will be tomorrow. And whoever you are tomorrow, wherever you are tomorrow, God will be with you tomorrow. He is at work and his promises are still true. And so when God's timing is not your timing, as it hardly ever is, and things are hard and things are uncomfortable and things are challenging and you feel weak and you feel broken and you feel like you're on your last leg, hold on and draw near to God. Cling to him, trust him. Because when you come out on the other side, it's really important that you see that it's not just happenstance that got you on the other side. It's not just random or working itself out or you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps that got you on the other side of the trial. But it was God who was working in your life all along for your good and his glory. You see, write this down. Though we might have to wait on God's timing, we serve a God who always keeps his promises and so we can trust him. Guys, I could tell you story after story. I could tell you stories from history. I could tell you about Corey Timboom, who trusted God's faithfulness to him, even though she was thrown in a Nazi concentration camp for hiding uh, people in her home. She lost her dad, she lost her sister, but in the end, God preserved her life and used her for years to come after that. I could tell you stories about George Mueller, who ran an orphanage in Europe, all these orphanages across Europe, and one day they were out of food, and they had all of these kids, and they weren't going to eat, and one day in the staff meeting, he was told there was no food, and he said, well, let's pray, and he prayed the Lord's Prayer, and he said, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, 
and the milkman's cart on the way uh, to his next stop broke down right outside the orphanage. And he said, hey, man, all this milk is going to spoil. Can you guys use it? And they said, you bet we can. And, the, and then the baker came to him and he said, hey, I woke up in the middle of the night with this urging that I needed to bake bread for the kids at the orphanage. Could you use some bread today? And he said, you bet you can. And God provided for them that what they needed for that day. I can tell you stories from history. I can tell you stories about my own life and how God has provided for and cared for and been near in difficult times. I can tell you stories about people in our church who didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And somehow someone calls me and says, Brent, we feel led that someone needs help and we want to help someone out. Do you know of anyone who needs help right now? And I said, I'm glad you called because I've got somebody. Funny you should ask. And again and again and again, God provides for and cares for and is near and he keeps his promises to his people. But here's the problem. I could tell you all these stories. And they might be moving. They might give you goosebumps. They might even cause you to leave here trusting God in the middle of something you're going through right now. But what they will not do is actually cause you to really trust in the middle. Because your trust of God is at a distance. And you haven't walked with him close enough and clung with him in the middle of that trial. And so you don't know that you can trust him. You can see how he's helped all these other people. And you think, that's great, but you've never experienced it for himself. Let me show you what I mean. A while back, French entertainer Charles Blondin was known as the best tightrope walker in the world. And one day he walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet across Niagara Falls, and the crowds were there, and they were watching him. It was a big spectacle, and as he walks across, they cheer for him. They chant, yeah, and then he comes up, and he gets a wheelbarrow, and he fills the wheelbarrow with cement, and the crowd goes nuts. 25,000 people are there cheering. Reporters are there snapping pictures, and he looks at the crowd and with the wheelbarrow, and he says, do you think I can do it? And they said, yeah, you can do it. We know you can. We've seen you do it. You're the great Charles Blondin. You got it. And so he walks across with the wheelbarrow. And when he comes back, he says, all right, I've got another one. Which one of you wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And they're like. (laughs) No one said a word. They had all seen him walk back and forth back and forth across this rope, take the wheelbarrow. They knew he could do it. They'd seen him do it. They were willing to cheer him on, but no one was willing to trust him with their life. But then his manager, a guy named Harry Colkert, who had been his manager for a long time, he said, he said, Blondin, I have, I've seen you do this time and time again. I have seen you do crazier things than this. I know you can do it, and I won't just get in the wheelbarrow. I'll get on your back. And he climbs up on his back to go across this roof. And so Blondin said to him, he said, look up, Harry. You are no longer Harry. You are Blondin. And until I clear this place, you be a part of me. Mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself, because if you do, we will both fall to our deaths. And they walked across the tightrope together. Do you know what faith is? Faith is trust. Faith says, God, I have seen you be faithful again and again and again. I have seen you keep your promises. I know you're with me. 
No matter how scary the moment is, I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to trust you. Even though we're swaying back and forth and I'm scared, I'm holding my breath, I'm going to keep my head up knowing you'll get me across. You see, faith isn't blind faith. It's not close your eyes and hope for the best. Faith comes when you know God so well because like this manager, you have spent so much time with him that you know him and you know he can do it and you know he'll never leave. You know he'll never forsake. You'll know he will provide because you know him and you know his heart. How did Simeon trust God? Look at the text, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon trusted God because this was a man of God who spent a lot of time with God. Guys, the reason some of you are in a season of your life where you are freaking out, and you, are, you just find it really difficult to trust God in the midst of this trial and this season, it is because you've not spent enough time with him. Plain and simple. You can hear about all these things God has done in other people's life, and it might move you, but it doesn't help you trust because you're not close enough to see him to know that he can get you across. You haven't spent enough time meditating and praying and crying out and clinging to him in desperation and seeing him get you through. And so when God says to you, hey, man, I know it's a tough time right now. I know it's a difficult season right now. Just get in the wheelbarrow. We'll get across. You're like, God, I don't know, man. It seems safer over on this side of the, of the river, on this side of the waterfall. It seems better over here. And God's like, no, man, you've just seen me go back. You've seen me do this. Get in. And you're like, I don't know. And the reason you don't know is because you're not close. You've not spent enough time with him. You've, you don't know him that you know him. You don't, and so you don't trust. Trusting God doesn't just happen. It is forged in you through the spending so much time with God that you actually know him, that you truly know him. Trusting God doesn't just happen one day because you're all of a sudden in a trial and you need to trust him and trust his promises. It is forged in you as you spend much time with him. Here's the last thing I'll say. When Simeon comes to the temple, there will have been a lot of people everywhere. Right? There's a lot of hustle and bustle going on in the temple. But he sees this young couple, and he sees this baby, and he, he's now been promised that he's going to see the baby Messiah. He's just promised that he's going to see him. He doesn't know how old he's supposed to be when he sees him, but yet he sees this young couple, and he sees baby Jesus, and he knows that's them. He recognizes him. By the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, he had eyes to see. He could see God directing him and fulfilling his promises right before him. And my question for us is, do you recognize the hand of God in your life? Are your eyes open to seeing him? Do you see his promises playing out? Do you see his faithfulness? Do you recognize where he is at work? Are you opening your eyes and looking? Here's one thing, practical thing I want to encourage you to do, and I think you'll find it incredibly helpful. Journal. Journal about the things that you are praying for. And journal about the things going on in your life. Because if you do that, I promise you, if you go back six months and you read over all the things that you were going through that you forgot about that were six months ago, you will see, oh, God did answer that prayer. Oh, I see now how God was working in all these things to bring me to where I am now. I, I, I just kind of forgot about it. I just kind of moved on to the next crisis 
and, and I forgot that God was faithful here. And so if you journal, you will look back and you will see the hand of God throughout every season of your life, working all things for good, keeping his promises to you. And instead of you chalking it up to it just working out and you moving on to the next crisis, you'll see the faithfulness of God. And so just journal. One of the reasons we have a hard time trusting God is because you've not noticed how he's been working in your life. And this is a way to fix that. When Odysseus comes home from the Trojan War, he finds his home in ruins and others, people trying to take it away. And so he plans to sneak in with the disguise of a beggar into his own home so that no one will recognize him. But as he walks through the gate of his palace, there is one person who is not fooled by his disguise, who knows immediately who he is, and it's his faithful dog, Argos, who has been waiting and waiting and waiting, knowing his master would one day come home. And once he sees him, he recognizes him. Though disguised, he knows who he is, and he goes and dies in peace. Simeon waited and waited, and God's promises came to pass. The world waited and waited and has seen God's promises come to pass. You have waited, and right now, maybe you're waiting to see those promises. But just like Argos, have eyes to see so that when the hand of God shows up in your life, you don't miss it. And you see it, and you see the promises and the faithfulness of God at work. Because he might not come like you expect. He might be dressed up like a beggar. He might come and work in a way that you weren't necessarily praying for or the way you wanted. So his timing might be off from yours. The way he does it might be off from yours. But trust me, you're going to want to see the hand of God. So have eyes to see. See, the deeper magic of Christmas reveals to us a God who is always faithful and always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that you are a promise maker and a promise keeper. That you have given your word to us on so many different things. And again and again and again and again and again you have kept your word. And yet, Father, we find ourselves so often at a place of, of stress and anxiety and worry. Because we're not sure if you're going to keep it again. And it's so illogical of us. Like you've never failed us one time, and yet for some reason we think tomorrow will be the day that you choose to fail us. But we know that you are a God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You are a God who orchestrates all of history according to your will. We know that nothing happens by random chance or by happenstance or accident. Things don't just merely happen and fall into place. No, you are working and wielding and managing all things according to the counsel of your will. And we can know and trust and rest you are a God who tomorrow won't be freaked out because we don't know, you don't know how you're going to work this one out for us. But you are a God who is seated on a throne in complete control. You never call an ambulance because you never respond to crisis. But rather you are ready and have planned and written our stories. And you have written the good one. And so, Father, help us to trust you. Help us that when you say, get in the wheelbarrow, that we jump in without hesitating, knowing, of course, he will get us across the river. We have no doubt he will get us across because he can, he will, he will do it. He makes promises and he keeps them. Father, would you work in us trust in the seasons of our lives that are difficult? Would you work in us the ability to trust you? And even in the good seasons, to help us to trust you with those. If you are in this room this morning and you... You can't trust in Jesus because you don't belong to him. You can't trust him because he's not your king. 
It would be my great joy and honor to, to show you how you can make him that this morning. By confessing your sin and asking him to forgive you, he will at a moment's notice do that. If you're here this morning and, and you're in the middle of a season, a trial, a difficulty, and you're struggling to trust in him, it would be my great joy to, to pray with you and help hold you up in this time. So as we sing this song, I'm going to make myself available over here on the left and, uh, and just want to invite you to come up. If, if that is a need you have, I'd love to pray with you and help you walk through that. Um, if not, man, let's just stand and sing together. Father, give us the courage to respond the way we need. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All simple said. Let's stand together.